0: We've been going through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Kings chapter 10. If you want to follow along in your Bible, and there should be one in the pew if you need one there. If not, somebody can grab you one there for you. 2 Kings, and we're up to chapter 10. King Ahab, he was the most evil king that ever ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel. And he had allowed his wife Jezebel, as you remember we went through the story there, to introduce Baal worship to the Jews. And, he, and the king Ahab, he allowed her to do that. He didn't stop her. She also slaughtered many of the Lord's prophets, and he didn't stop that either. And he never showed any repentance for all the evil that he was involved in. So the Lord had declared that the family of Ahab would be wiped out. And to accomplish that, the Lord appointed Jehu to be the next king over the northern kingdom. And we were introduced to him last time and saw how the Lord raised him up and how the Lord had started to use him. Excuse me. And, you know, as we we think about this, some people, they don't care for the idea when they hear the Lord is taking out a family line. You know, a whole group of folks there. But nobody should get upset when they see the Lord make a decision like that, uh, that he's going to wipe out this evil family You know, if we're honest, and we think about it, we should be amazed the Lord doesn't wipe out all humanity because we're all sinners, right, and deserving punishment from the Lord. Praise the Lord that he's full of mercy and grace and offers us a way out. Uh, And you think about it, only one person didn't deserve judgment. He was the only one who was sinless his entire life on the earth, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. And though he was without sin, he was willing to take our place and die on the cross, paying for our sins so we could be forgiven. So we don't complain about God's decisions, even the hard ones, but in, in reverse of that, we're eternally grateful for his decision to show us his mercy and his grace through Christ. So let's jump into uh, 2 Kings 10, verse 1. Sounds like they're having a more joyous celebration downstairs, and we are up here. Uh, don't get too jealous. Hopefully we'll find a little joy in our study here today. Uh, this is a tough passage, but hang in there, guys. 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons. So Ahab apparently had a number of wives, not just Jezebel, and it would fit for a guy like this to have a lot of stuff going there. And he apparently had a very large number of children. Uh, We'll see as we we go through our study today that there seems to be just more relatives popping up here and there. So uh, he had a lot of stuff going on. He fathered a lot of children. So we're told here that there were 70 sons of his at this location. And Jehu, we're told also, he's the king now, uh, he writes letters to all those that were involved in raising the sons And who took care of them? So it lists those people here: the the rulers, the elders, and everybody who was involved in rearing his children. Obviously, he didn't take time to do any of that. Uh, Verse two: it says, "Now, as soon as this letter uh, comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne." and fight for your master's house. So it tells us what this letter said that was sent to all these different people. And it's interesting. He says, as soon as this letter gets to you. So Jehu's telling them, they need to take action immediately. He's not messing around. There's not a lot of time in between here for them to chew on this. He is saying, as soon as you get this, you're gonna need to do something about it. And he also points out, you know, that they've got a lot going for themselves, military-wise, if you notice what he listed there in verse two, he said, you've got chariots, and those we mentioned before were like having tanks, pretty powerful weapons back then. They have horses, they've got a, a, fortified, a fortified city, and they've got weapons. So military-wise, they're, they're not any weak pushover bunch of folks here, uh, so he, he lets them know, hey, you guys got this stuff going for you? So he says, I want you to do something with it. And Verse 3, he told them, choose the best guy you can come up with. You know, any one of your master's sons here, they're from the royal line, so to speak, even though this Ahab was so wicked. Uh, he says, set one of those guys on the father's, their father's throne and basically get ready for a fight. So he's telling themselves, you know, make yourself a king, the very best one you can appoint from Ahab's family line. And then basically he's saying, I'm going to come to war against you. Wow. Yeah, this guy, he's, he's kind of in your face. We saw that before when we looked at some of his characteristics. <clears throat> so verse 4, we see how they respond to this. It says, but they were exceedingly afraid. <laughs> and they said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? You know, so we're told these guys, they weren't just a little shook up at this message when they heard it but they were exceedingly afraid, all right? And we're told why they felt that way in the second part of verse four. They, these guys are saying, look, he already took out two kings. And he's talk, they're talking about the northern king, the, king of, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. He's taken both of those guys out, and they weren't able to stand against him. So it's kind of like saying the entire nation of Israel, northern and southern kingdom, they couldn't stop this guy. So now you're telling us to suit up and come on out there and, and we're going to fight you? Yeah, that, that's, that's something that they don't want to deal with here. We're going to find out. Now, you think about this. If you've heard how our fierce Jehu was from what it's uh, told us before, how he really doesn't leave any survivors once he sets his sights on you, he goes after him. right? That would be enough to make anybody think you know, twice about having this guy as an enemy. It's like, I don't think we want to get in this guy's bad side. But consider this, okay? If the common person in this world were to understand how fierce the Lord can be and how powerful and inescapable God's wrath can be, then that should be enough to make anybody exceedingly afraid. Yeah, this is just one man here. We're not talking about the God of the universe, okay? And if a person understands how how fierce God's wrath can be, all right, then the next question they should be asking is, how can I get on God's good side? Because I sure don't wanna be on God's bad side, right? And that's why we shouldn't shy away from telling people about God's fierce wrath that's coming to this world. Some people need to be scared into heaven, amen? I mean, that's, I was hard-headed. I needed to be basically scared into heaven. So there are people that need to know the whole story. Uh, We hear a lot of folks saying, well, God loves you, and it's true, he does. But there's there's another side of that, too, that if you don't receive God's love now, you're in trouble. And that love comes through Jesus Christ. So any thoughts that somebody might have that says, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to tell people about hell and about God's wrath. Those thoughts come from the devil. He doesn't want people to know that they are sinners and that they're truly going to face the judgment because of their sin. And he wants people to think that they're really not that bad of a person. So they're going to get in heaven just fine. You know, and also he wants people to think that they're going to get a second chance to get right with God after they die. Just in case they made the wrong decision while they were still alive. But none of those things are true. Right. The devil, he would love to see people ignorantly face God's judgment. He'd love to see that happen. He likes to keep people blind by the fact that they desperately need Jesus and that they are in huge trouble if they don't have Jesus. I want to remind us of a couple of things this morning. Hold your place here. and Look at 1 John chapter 5. I know these are familiar passages to you, but just a good reminder here as we think about this, some of the, the lies the devil throws around out there, and people swallow and maybe you're one. I swallowed some of that stuff before I got saved. I didn't know the whole truth. I didn't know the, the gospel there. So here in 1 John chapter 5, if you want to look down to verse 19, it tells us a very interesting thing here. It says, we know that we are of God. That's in verse 19 of 1 John 5. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And that picture of the sway there reminds me of the, the mom just Rocking her little baby back and forth, swaying back and forth, telling the baby, "It's okay, baby. It's all right." And that's what the devil's trying to tell people. "It's OK. You don't need Jesus. You'll be OK. Don't even think about that. Don't listen to these people. Don't think that God's wrath is going to come. It's not going to come to you." So he's, he's lying to people, and he's got them in his sway. But that's why it's so important. we need to let people know the whole story. I mean, if these folks were so afraid when they heard what this this one king did to these other two kings, these powerful men, they haven't seen anything yet about what what God can do, the God of the universe, when his wrath is poured out. Another passage in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 4, another good reminder for us here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you want to look down to verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, they just don't see it, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. So the devil likes to keep, keep people blinded. It says, who do not believe. These are folks who don't know the truth, they haven't believed the truth. And, and here's the reason he wants to keep them blind. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So he's trying to keep the blinders on people. He does not want them to see the truth. He doesn't want, to see, want them to see the good news of Christ. And the good news is what Jesus is rescuing us from the bad news that God's wrath is coming. So, yeah, those are important things for us to, to be reminded of, I think. And uh, this is it's a, just an encouragement from the Lord. So, back in our passage in 2 Kings again. Like I was saying, uh, I really like what it says at the end. If you look at verse four again, when in the very middle of it, it says, two kings could not stand up to him. And then they ask this question of themselves. How, can, how then can we stand? And you know, let's apply that statement to the Lord. If no one has been able to stand up against the Lord not even, if they were a world leader like Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. He ruled the, the entire world, known world world at that time. He could not stand up to the Lord. If no one can stand up to the Lord, then we ask the question, how then can we stand? That's a very good question to examine ourselves with. And that's one of those, those powerful questions that you can underline or highlight or wherever you want to mark it. Because that's a question that hopefully every human ask of themselves before they have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And we know the answer is, how can we stand? It's only in Christ. We have nothing to stand on our own. Jesus paid for our sins. Because of that, we can come into Christ, we can receive him into our life, and now we are safe in Christ. And we're able to stand before God only because we're in Christ, right? That's the only reason. So back in our passage in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 5, And it says, and he who is in charge of the house, and he who is in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons. These are all the people here that were involved in in raising Ahab's children and protecting them. It says, they sent to Jehu saying, we are your servants. (laughs) It's like, we are not your enemies. We don't want to fight you. We are your servants. Uh, We will do all you tell us but we will not make anyone king. Don't think we're going to raise any kind of, have any kind of uprising against you, okay? It says, they say, do what is good in your sight, okay? So even all those who are in charge, these are men of authority. I mean, these are guys who have the authority to raise the children of the king. These are guys that you normally would not want to mess with, right? These guys, they basically were saying, hey, We'll gladly be your servants. You know, you just tell us what to do. We'll do it without complaining. You don't have to worry about that. Bring up a king. Oh, no, no, you're our king. We don't want to raise anybody else. We'll completely surrender to you. Now, again, for those who truly understand and fear the Lord, that should be their response to the Lord too. We will gladly be your servants, Lord. You know, uh, you tell us what to do and we will do it. Have you made that decision in your life? Have you submitted completely to the Lord because if not then then what are you waiting for the men in this town knew that they didn't have much time and they needed to act very quickly you know if they wanted to avoid Jehu's wrath and we don't know how much time we have right so we need to act quickly too I mean not only could our life end at any moment we don't have control over that but also Jesus could return and we're out of here and folks are left then with, with what's left of this world and then the enemy, the Antichrist is coming. So man, the day is the day of salvation. The Lord was not kidding when he said that. Verse six goes on. So he's got their letter back and it says, then he wrote a second letter to them. Here's Jehu's response to their reaction. If you are for Me, and you will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. And I didn't say bring the master's sons. I just want their heads. <laughs> just leave the bodies. I just want their heads. Woo, this is tough stuff. So Jehu is saying here, if you really are going to submit to thee, then you need to prove it. And the way that you do that is I want you to bring all of their heads to me, the 70 sons of Ahab. I want their heads tomorrow. Wow, he, he wasn't messing around. He said, you gotta take action quick, Okay. And I want you to think about this. When the Lord tells us to prove that we're submitting to him, he doesn't ask us to do something as gory as bringing him seven bleeding heads, right? He simply says, we need to put our faith in Jesus and in what he did for us on the cross. And the Bible says that he who has the son, referring to Jesus, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. So the Lord does, he, does, he doesn't tell us to, to bring some bleeding heads to him. He simply says, you need to have Jesus, you know? And Jesus did all the heavy lifting. He's the one who did all, had the painful death on the cross to pay for all of our sins. So Jesus did the hard part. You know, we just need to accept Christ. The Lord's made it extremely easy for us. Yeah, I find it interesting too that the, the 70 sons, it says here, if you notice in verse six there, or verse, at the end of verse six, Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So I think that's kind of interesting. It tells us these sons were with these guys. So I was wondering if any of them heard the reading of these letters. And we're not told the ages of these guys. I think they were probably all ages all the way down to some probably pretty young folks there. But I wonder if any of them were listening to these letters because I thought, I would imagine their, their thoughts were probably, you know, there's no way these great men who have poured their lives into us, who are taking good care of us and protecting us every day, there's no way they're going to do us any harm, much less cut off our head and deliver us to Jehu? I don't think so. But I don't know. I just was wondering you know, if any of them heard them discussing these letters or reading these letters to each other or what. But anyway, that's that's probably the thoughts they would have, right? And again, they're wrong because these guys are going to try to save uh, themselves. Verse 7 goes on, it says, So it was when the letter came to them, and they saw the conditions of proving their, their uh, faithfulness to this king Jehu, they took the king's sons and they slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. So these guys were serious. They were willing to do this out of fear to save their own skin." or to save their own heads, as the case may be here, right? Now, from Jehu's perspective, there are 70 guys. You think about it, where he's coming from. There are 70 guys There, He doesn't have to worry about them coming after him to get their, maybe get their daddy's kingdom back. They're off the table now. And these 70 guys, they're never gonna show up for vengeance at his door. So problem solved for him as far as he sees it. Okay, verse 8 goes on. Then a messenger came and told him, so here he is, he's given them a letter, he's waiting for a response, he hasn't heard it yet. You know, they didn't have texting, and it get stuff pretty fast, so he had to wait for somebody to bring the message. So verse 8, then a messenger came and told him, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So these heads laying at the gate would be a very visible warning to anybody who would try to come against Jehu. That was kind of a normal way they they used to try to strike fear into people. You know, anybody that might think about conspiring against the king, uh, you come up there and say, what's all these heads? Oh, those are guys that might have come against the king. Oh, okay, I'm not going there. I'm not going to go that direction, right? That's the same reason the Romans would perform the crucifixions at the main roads coming into a town, to strike fear into anyone that would ever dare to think of coming against them. So this is what what he's doing here. Boy, he's he's got all the stuff, don't he? Uh, Verse 9. So it was in the morning that he went out and he stood and he said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. And who killed all these? So Jehu, he's letting the people know that you guys didn't do anything wrong by your actions here of killing the sons of Ahab. He himself, you know, he says, I went after one of his sons, too. I went after Joram. Uh, that was his master. That was the king, and he, he took him out. So together, all of them were participating in taking out Ahab's family line. And he goes on now to explain how this was God's will. Look at verse 10. Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. That was a long time ago the Lord had made that prophecy, and he's saying that's why all this stuff happened. This was God's will, and you were involved in in doing God's will. So he's saying he was fulfilling God's will by his own actions, and so were these people. And by saying it this way, you know, Jehu was acknowledging, too, that it's actually the Lord who did this. He's the one who made the prophecy, and at the end of verse 10, if you notice, it says... For the Lord has done what he spoke. God did this. So he's actually giving God the credit here for fulfilling his word. I think that's a good thing. You know, when God does something, he fulfills a promise in our life, we should tell people and say, God did this. He said he was gonna, he did it, and he gets all the glory for that one. You know, we had nothing to do with that. He did that. So verse 11. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his close acquaintances, and his priests, until he left none remaining here. Now I want you to notice something here as we're gonna look at this just a second, but where does this take place? It says in Jezreel. It gives us the location and reminds us of that. It's important. We'll see in a minute here. So hold on to that thought. Now Jehu, you know, he was trying to be thorough here. I imagine he seems like a really thorough guy as we look at him and how he operates and I don't think he wanted to take any chances that somebody who maybe really liked Ahab, you know, one of his friends or, you know, somebody acquaintances with him or something, he wanted to make sure that none of them woke up one day and said, you know what, today I'm going to get vengeance against this guy. So he decided he would take all of these people out. But in doing that, he went beyond what God had appointed him to do. In verse 11 there, if you notice, it says, besides all the, the remainder of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, he also took out all his great men. That would include not only the folks that raised him, but probably some of the bodyguards and things like this. And his close acquaintances, guys that were good friends, no bloodline relation, they just hung around with him. And his priests, so that had, had the spiritual oversight of some of the stuff he was into, he took all of them out. He wasn't going to take any chances. That was not under God's direction. The Lord did not tell him to do that. So he was leaning on his own understanding rather than trusting the Lord with all of his heart. And I want you to see how serious the Lord takes it when we do that. That's why I wanted you to think about that, Jezreel, a second. Turn to uh, Hosea, if you want, at the end of the Old Testament. We're the Meyer prophets there. Hosea chapter 1. If you want, I'll read that to you as I get there myself. It's at the beginning of the... uh, The minor prophets there, as we call them. Hosea chapter 1. This is kind of interesting that the Lord would, uh, to me, kind of have this tucked in here. It's a reminder that the Lord does not forget when people do things. But Hosea chapter 1, and down to verse 4, here's part of the prophecy the Lord was giving. Then the Lord said to him, call his name, and notice, Jezreel, as a Hosea is going to have a son here, and he wants him to put this name on him, Jezreel. And he explains why. For in a little while, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of, guess who? Jehu. And bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That's part of the judgment on the northern kingdom. But Jehu is, is declared guilty here of bloodshed. That was because he went beyond what the Lord said. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Man, the Lord doesn't forget, does he? When someone steps out of bounds, the Lord knows that, and it's like, like it's not like he's like, oh, I didn't even see that. How'd you pull that one off? No, the Lord says, I saw all of that, and I do not forget. Yeah, if we don't come to God for mercy, expected judgment is coming, you know? Something that we would see from God, uh, he, he told Jehu originally, you know, and somebody said this, I thought it was interesting, because Jehu didn't follow the original plan. He went beyond and did some things and taking lives that the Lord didn't tell him to. And somebody said this, a large judgment is always very measured and very precise. There is never any excess. It is always perfect justice. So if God says to wipe out uh, Ahab's family line, then that was exactly what he meant. Nothing more and nothing less. Exactly, it should be taken care of. So Jehu here, what he did now as a leader of Israel, he gave a distorted picture of God's justice by the actions that he took by killing all of these people who were not of the bloodline of Ahab. Yeah, verse 12 goes on. We're back in 2 Kings uh, chapter 10, sorry. Uh, Verse 12 goes on. And he arose and he departed and he went to Samaria. So now he's, he's done his, his deed here at, at, uh, at Jezreel. So he's going to another place where he knows there's some more relatives. And it says, on the way at Beth Achaed of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Now that was the king of the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. And that was one of them that Jehu had killed. He killed that king. And uh, he met with these guys and he said, who are you? I mean, he didn't know who they were. Hadn't seen their face on Facebook or nothing, so he didn't recognize these guys. So they answered, we are the brothers of Ahaziah. I mean, they're related in there. And we have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. And that's referring to Jezebel. So you remember here, you know, Ahaziah, don't forget this, he was a blood relative of Ahab. So he's on the list, all right? Now these guys apparently... Hadn't heard about all the things that happened. This happened. Jehu, as you know, he operates very quickly. <laughs> he started doing this stuff. News hadn't even spread to these guys that were coming up here to visit the relatives and stuff. So they didn't know about the death of Jezebel. They think they're going to go still, still see the queen mother and pay their respects. And they probably hadn't heard that Jehu had killed Ahaziah. So by them saying that their relatives here... <laughs> It's like, boy, you guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time and you sure said the wrong thing (laughs) because this is not gonna be your day. Yeah, so go on to verse 14. He said this, take them alive. So he's got his troops with him. So they took them alive and they killed them at the well of Beth Akeid, 42 men, and he left none of them. So looking at the big picture, it appears that the Lord led Jehu down this direction and right here at this place at this time to meet this other large group of men who were descendants of Ahab. And the Lord had them wiped out here too by the hand of Jehu, which was what he was supposed to do. So this kind of lets us see that when the Lord says that people are going to be judged, they are not going to escape that fate. You know, as far as us, we're either going to accept Jesus him paying our judgment on the cross, or we're gonna have to face the judgment of God ourselves. But no one is gonna get away from facing God. You know, the Lord says that every knee shall bow to him and every tongue shall confess to God. That's a pretty clear statement. And it teaches us that we all need to remain humble before the Lord, right? So verse 15 goes on. Now, when he departed from there, so here's Jehu leaving the area now. He met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, or Rechab, and I can't really pronounce the the Hebrew. I need your help on that one, Don. It's like Rechab or something. I don't know how you do that. Uh, Anyway, he met this guy that was coming to meet him. The guy was on his way to meet with Jehu. And he greeted him, and he said to him, so here's Jehu, got a question for him. Is your heart right, as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. He likes to see proof, don't he, when he tells somebody something and questions them? So he said he gave him his hand and he took him up into the chariot. So he pulls him up into his chariot there. Now this, this Jehonadab, that's a new name too, was an interesting character. We find out more about him later on in the book of Jeremiah. But basically, he was a man that was very zealous for the Lord. And he led his, his family line to be zealous for the Lord, too. This guy was dead serious when it came to the things of the Lord. That's quite an accomplishment, to, to raise your family with a very strong expectation that we are all going to follow the Lord, and we're going to follow him close. Okay? So that's quite an accomplishment, especially when you think about the time period in which he lived. You know, at that time, all Israel was in rebellion to the Lord. They were fully into idolatry, including all the worship of Baal. That hasn't been dealt with yet, so that's all going on. And even during that that wicked time period, this man was able to not only remain zealous and faithful to the Lord, but he also strongly led his family in the same way. And, you know, I hope we accept that challenge ourselves, to lead our families in that way. We really don't have an excuse to say, well, look how bad our society's coming and all this become and all that. We have no excuse. We know the Lord. We can walk as close to the Lord as we want. And we can stress that to our families too. Nothing's stopping us but the one in the, look out in the mirror. That's the only one that's slowing us down here, right? Because the enemy can't stop us. Jesus said the gates of hell can't prevail against my church, right? So Jehu here, he was asking him, are you on my side basically? <laughs> and Jehonadab he was probably glowing with excitement, I think, as zealous as a guy he was. And, and now he's able to see firsthand the word of the Lord being fulfilled against Ahab's evil family line. He knew about the prophecy, and now here's the man who's going to carry out and fulfill that. So he had no problem saying yes when he said, are you on my side? And uh, then he, he climbs up into Jehu's chariot. <laughs> Verse 16, uh, then he said, so here's Jehu talking to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride right in his chariot. Now, I have to laugh a little bit when I read this because Jehu was saying, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And what was Jehu known for when it came to driving his chariot? Do You remember that? We saw that earlier. He was known for driving furiously. So I think when Jehonadab saw that, he was probably hanging on saying, oh yeah, now this is some crazy zeal for the Lord, you know. But I'm just being funny here because I know that's not the zeal that Jehu was talking about when he pulled him into the chariot. He drove that way crazy normally. That wasn't unusual for him to show off his zeal. He was talking about the zeal for the Lord because he, what he was about to do. He was going to finish the job. He was going to completely wipe out the rest of Ahab's family line. And that's what he was telling him he wanted him to see. Now, I want to deal with something on the, the serious side of this verse. For Jehu to advertise his zeal for the Lord like this, I don't believe it's a good thing to do. This doesn't come across as having a very humble heart. And we see this guy later on, we're gonna see he's got some issues, okay? To me, it's kind of like him saying, come up here and watch me slaughter these people in the name of the Lord. But we saw last time in Ezekiel that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? So if the Lord calls us to deal with someone and deliver a hard message, we'd better be careful how we do that. We need to remain humble before the Lord and we need to approach a situation you know, exactly as the Lord tells us to do. And unfortunately, I know I've failed on that before. I have not, I've not done that. You can usually tell by the guilt and the conviction you feel afterwards. And guys, I would share this with you. You know, the Lord talks about the church in uh, Revelation that lost their first love. We gotta be careful, I think, in our own walk with the Lord because I can speak for myself. It's, it's easy to get cynical at times, you know, and and we can be if we're not careful we can walk away and drift away from from walking in the love of the Lord. So guard your heart. You know, take time to get get back with the Lord, spend some time when they say Lord, please examine my heart. If I'm drifting from from your love, having it in my life and showing it to other people, Lord, as you command me to do, right? The Lord said, without love what are we? Nothing. What can we accomplish? Nothing. We need Jesus. We need his love. So uh, wouldn't it wouldn't be a bad time of the year to, to stop and say, Lord, check my heart. I want to be right with you. I want to have the love of God flowing through my life. And uh, if you're like me, you might have to admit and say, I messed up sometimes. I didn't do that. So Lord, we know you're, you're full of mercy. Help us get through this and get back where we should be. Verse 17 goes on. And when he came to Samaria, so he's got him on, the, on board the chariot now, and he comes to Samaria. He killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So here, Jehu was doing the right thing. He stayed within the guidelines the Lord gave him. He only killed those who were of the household of Ahab. All right, so verse 18. Uh, then Jehu gathered all the people together, and he said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve, them, serve him much. So he's, he's taken out the evil leadership, and now he's going to deal with the evil religion, but... Sadly, only to a certain point, we'll see in the end of the passage here. Now, remember, you know, the people in the northern kingdom, they'd been led into Baal worship by the evil queen Jezebel. So now the people who are Baal worshipers, they're going to find out that Jehu is going to allow them to continue their worship to this false god, Baal. Or at least that's how it appeared at first. So verse 19, therefore, now therefore, he says, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests, let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. So he's making up this, this great event. He's calling them all to come. And look at this, whoever is missing shall not live. So he even puts a, a death threat on here for anybody who doesn't show up. It says, but Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And I'm not sure if the Lord was telling us that about Jehu being deceptive, deceptive here for our own benefit, so maybe we wouldn't be fooled by what he was doing, thinking, oh, man, this guy's a Baal worshiper. You know, the Lord lets us know this was all a fake show, what he was doing. Or I don't know if the Lord is, is just marking this as a deceptive act that he didn't approve of. You know, I'm not sure which side you take on that. When I know personally, it kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth just the way he decided to use deception here to do, quote, the right thing, you know, as the Lord told him. So you'll have to wrestle with this passage too, maybe. And I guess this could be argued both, both ways. I mean, I know that law enforcement, they use deception or trickery sometimes to catch the bad guys. You know, I'm sure you've heard of them sending out the mailings and telling these guys, hey, you won this prize, come on down here and collect it. When they do, they arrest them and take them out the back door for some outstanding warrant they had that they didn't get arrested for. And I guess we all kind of use deceptive or trickery at times, if you want to call it that. Maybe we're throwing like a surprise birthday party or something, you know. We're, we're kind of deceiving the person, you know, letting them not know when it's coming. But I guess, again, it's how far you want to take that. I don't want to be a stickler on that. But those are some of the things I wrestle with when I think about stuff like this. The Lord does use the word deceptive here. So like I said, that kind of leaves a bad taste for me. But this is your, your choice on this passage. You wrestle with that one too. Uh, It goes on then in verse uh, 20, excuse me. And Jehu said this, uh, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, so they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came. Notice how many folks showed up. So there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. So a lot of folks into Baal worship here. Verse 22, and he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the best vestments for him. And I think he was actually marking them here. So he's got a reason. He wants people to know clearly who these guys are. Uh, verse 23, then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. So Jehonadab is still with him at this point and uh, they're making very sure that only the bad guys, the worshipers of Baal, show up for this event. So they're being very thorough in making sure they only have the guilty ones here. Verse 24, so they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed, uh, and he really goes to the extreme here I think in doing these sacrifices. It's really his point I think is saying let all their barriers down, everything's good here folks. We just had a sacrifice to Baal. So everybody's probably at ease. And uh, it says here, he had 80 men on the outside of the place. And he said, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, these would be all the guys marked with the robes of Baal here, whoever lets them escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. So I see them being very careful on this side too, of saying uh, I don't want to, I'm very thorough, I don't want to let anybody get through who deserves to be uh, judged here. Now what they were doing in in killing these these folks was not wrong, I know it sounds kind of rough at first, but remember the Lord has said in the Law of Moses that anyone who worships any other God than the Lord himself needs to be put to death. So this was a capital offense that all these worshipers of Baal were committing. The penalty for their crime was the death penalty, all right? So he wasn't just going crazy on this, he was actually doing God's will. So. It says in verse 25, It happened as soon as he had made an end of the the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard, to the captains, Go in and kill them, let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought out the sacred pillars of the temple of Baal and they burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and they tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. And that refuse dump can also be the idea of basic uh, public restrooms. I mean, they just thought, you do this to the Lord's territory. We're going to do this to, to your stuff here. So uh, the Lord is interesting in what he's shown us here. Uh, this is what we should do with any idol that comes up in our life. You know, don't just put it in the back of the closet, but completely destroy it. Did you notice the terms it used here in verse 27? Uh, they burned them. They broke them down. They tore them down. And they made them into a trash dump, something that's a disgusting place, a disgusting thing. And again, that's what we should do with any idol that we end up having in our life. So verse 28, then Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. And this is a really good thing that he did that needed to come to an end. So verse 29, however, and man, you hate to see these words when things are looking so good and so positive, but they're here. Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and it tells us what he did here, who made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and at Dan. So he continued idol worship from the original idols that were set up when the kingdom was divided. So he didn't personally turn away from these sins himself. So somebody said, Jehu is a picture of someone who hates the sin of others, but he's not bothered by his own sin, And that's a very dangerous place to be. Some have said that this shows that he had no personal relationship with God. Uh, We do know that he was one of the kings of the northern kingdom and they had no good kings, so he was kind of the best of the bad, but he was still bad himself. And I'm sure Jehonadab didn't stand by his side when he went in to worship these idols. You know, knowing Jehonadab's reputation of being so faithful to the Lord, there'd be no way he would make any compromise like that. So somewhere along the line here, I think they parted company. And I imagine Jonah, we'll have to talk to him one day and ask him, I bet he walked away with his head down like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? You got such a chance to bring full reform to this area and you're not doing it. So verse 30, and the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart. So you obeyed what I told you to the letter on that part. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Excuse me. So some of what he did was pleasing to the Lord and the Lord acknowledged that. So the Lord doesn't miss it on that side either when somebody did something for the Lord. Uh, It's not means he's gonna escape judgment, but he does get an acknowledgement that you did this right, okay? And I believe the Lord wanted to use this as an opportunity in his life to really draw him close, to say, Jehu, man, I'll reward you for doing good, man. Stay close to me, you know, follow me. But look at the next verse. Here's one of them words again. You know, God just said something good, but verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. So it says here he took no heed and he was not concerned about all of his heart following the Lord. So I wasn't serious at all, truly, about following the Lord. He enjoyed doing things that the Lord had him do as long as it profited him and as long as it brought him fame. But when it came down to it, he really just wanted to do things his own way and he wanted to live for himself. You know, selfishness, it looks so disgusting when we see it in other people, doesn't it? I think the Lord lets us see that to think, wait a minute, I'm kind of like that too in some ways. And the Lord says, I wanted you to kind of notice that. Yeah. Yeah, we need to stay home before the Lord. Verse 32, in those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. So Lord's starting to take pieces away to show his displeasure with their continuing in idolatry. And Haziel conquered them and all the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. And it tells us the land here, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, from Aorior, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan, And uh, the Lord here shows that displeasure he has for their lack of obedience. And Israel basically is starting to deteriorate. The Lord's kind of letting them see it's drifting away here, guys. You drift away from me and you're losing some land too. So compromise will do that to us. If we compromise, don't be surprised when your life starts to deteriorate in areas, right? And also here, these people it mentions... Remember, those are the ones who wanted to stay outside the promised land when they were given the promised land. Those tribes said, we like it right here. We're just fine. But the problem was they were commanded to go in the promised land. So the Lord gave them grace. He said, if you want to stay out here, okay, you know, but you're going to have to help your brothers conquer the land because that I'm not letting you out of. But if you want to stay here, okay. One of the problems with that is they were not protected in the, as they were in the promised land. So when the attackers came, like right here, they are the first ones to get beat up spiritually mentioned before, this is a picture of Christians who want to walk with the Lord to a point, but they don't want to fully surrender to the Lord. They don't want the spirit-filled life, which requires full surrender, because the promised land is a picture of the spirit-filled life. You've got to surrender to the Lord to go in there and say, okay, Lord, I'm trusting you. I fully trust in you, okay? So, these is a, that's a picture of those who are not willing to do that, and it's doesn't make sense to me. I'm thinking, man, this beautiful life is great. You need to jump in. It's tough. There are times the Lord takes you places. You're really shocked at, but the Lord's with you all the way, so you're not missing anything here. Verse 34, now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did, all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. We don't have that book of Chronicles, by the way. The, uh, the book of Chronicles we have, it focuses on the southern kingdom of Judah because that's where the line of the Messiah was coming. So this book here, we don't know about, we don't we don't have any copies that anybody's aware of, I don't know of, that exists. So verse 35, so Jehu rested with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. So it's interesting, the Lord gave him a long time to rule because he did obey the Lord in certain areas, getting rid of some of the evil in the land there. He didn't do it all, unfortunately. But the Lord, I think, rewarded him, and allowed him to stay longer, and he said he's gonna let his son stay around longer too. So like I said, a difficult passage, uh, a tough thing here. Uh, I noticed the kids have quieted down too, so their joy has come down a little bit too. But you know, we rejoice in the Lord to know that we've escaped judgment because of Christ, right? Otherwise, we're like these folks, we got a rough future to look at. Praise God that Jesus rescued us, right? So as we close in prayer, pray for somebody, if they come to mind, uh, Lord, uh, that, that the Lord might be telling you, you need to pray for these folks. They haven't received Christ yet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day that you told us the truth about Jesus. and Lord, I personally thank you for the day you told me the truth about hell and what's awaiting me if I don't have Christ. I thank you, Lord, for scaring me in your direction and then filling me with your love. Lord, I thank you for that. Father, I pray for all the folks here. If anybody's here who has not made a true decision for Christ, I pray today you would challenge their heart and let them see their need for Jesus. And If someone here who has not crossed over the promised land, they've not received the spirit-filled life, I pray help them to fully surrender and say, Lord, my life is completely yours. Take it. Do whatever you want with it. It is yours. You paid for it. Your, your son's blood was shed. So, Lord, you, you take this life and do whatever you want. And, Lord, we rejoice to know you as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. So we we just give this time back to you and we thank you for the opportunity to get into your word. We give you the praise for the work you're doing through your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.